We thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace that is renewed every morning. We ask that your Holy Spirit be with us this morning as we go through this next section in Acts, as we study the the resolving of Paul's um, missionary journeys and what you led him to uh, as the narrative plays out at the end of the book. I pray that we are encouraged, that we are um, that we are emboldened to be um, true witnesses to the gospel in a world that is increasingly hostile. Um, let us, I pray, live lives that reflect the goodness of the grace you've given to us and help us to move forward in that a little bit more this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we are in Acts 21. <clears throat> And contrary to popular belief, uh, there are only 28 chapters in Acts, not 29. I know, I know. But uh, so we're going to look at chapter 21, verses 1 through 16 this morning. And the last time, the last time we were together, we saw Paul's love for the disciples at Ephesus as he departed for Jerusalem. What's looming over this journey to Jerusalem? What's what's going on here? couple of things that are happening. Why is he going to Jerusalem? So there's a relief offering. There had been a famine in Jerusalem. We, we found out that that was prophesied in chapter 11. Incidentally, we're going to see that guy again. Um, and so there's, this, there's kind of a devastation among the populace in Jerusalem. And so Paul has taken up an offering uh, among the people in the... Um, the Mesopotamian area, the Greek the Ephesus area, the Corinthian area, those areas, and has gotten some money to take as a relief offering to the people in Jerusalem. So that's, functionally, that's what's going on. What else is going on? What's driving him to go? Passover. Okay. There's a time constraint. He wants to get there before Passover, right? That's true. What else is driving him to go to Jerusalem? Always a good answer. In Sunday school, Holy Spirit, yes. How do we know that? It says. It says it. That's always a good place to start. What, what are some ways that, that, that Luke tells us the Holy Spirit is driving Paul to go to Jerusalem? What, what's happened already? Does Paul say anything about that to the disciples at Ephesus in chapter, at the end of chapter 20? Do you recall? Bueller, Bueller, Bueller. I'm just going to say the answer is yes, but there's a reason. How does he, how does he describe it? Only that in every town that I go to, what? Persecution. Told by whom and how and just get the feel of it. Draw it out. Holy Spirit testifies to him that he will receive persecutions in every town. He's, he's getting this feed from people coming to him saying, here's this, here's this. And he knows himself, the Holy Spirit is telling him, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be persecuted. And that it continues in this chapter. He's going, the Holy Spirit's telling him to go, telling him that he's going to suffer, and yet still telling him to go, which we talked about a little bit last time. But this, in this chapter, in this section, Luke spends a lot of time drawing out 
this journey motif. I mean, we hit all the ports in this chapter. Um, and in doing so, he's making some very strong comparisons to Jesus' journey to Jerusalem before the passion that led to the crucifixion. Um, do you remember Jesus' warnings of what he would face in Jerusalem to his disciples? Remember he said that the Son of Man is going to be delivered up to the Jews, and the Jews are going to deliver him to the Gentiles, and they're going to beat him and, and, and kill him. And do you remember the response of the disciples? Yeah, it's probably in God's will. Let's go with that. Is that, is that how they approached that? No, they were like, what are you talking about? You're going to rule over Jerusalem. You're going to be king. We're going to be right there with you. And that's the whole thing in their mindset. Such that he tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. Right? Remember that? Remember that whole scene? We've done that a few times. Okay. So in the backdrop of this passage is, is th this theme that Jerusalem is the place for the rejection of God's messengers. Christ was arrested and executed there. Paul is going to be, it's, and, and is prophesied in these chapters that we're reading, that he's going to be arrested there and his life will be put in extreme danger. All right, so let's look at verses 1 through 6 and, uh, and see what it has to say. And when we had parted from them and set sail... We came by a straight course to Cos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul, not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another, then went on board the ship, and they returned home. So here we have in the first three verses a detailed itinerary of where he goes after Ephesus. You've got port here, port here, port here. But notice that first clause in verse 1. What does it say? And when we had parted from them. Now the ESV says it translates it that way. And the NASB translates it that way. Curiously enough, the NIV of all things translates it when we had torn ourselves away. And I really think that that's the sense of the word there that, that, that Luke is using. What does that tell you about Paul? What does that tell you about the disciples that he's with? When we had torn ourselves away from these people at Ephesus. They didn't want to leave. They didn't want to leave. They didn't want to leave, but the thing is done. They need to go. He needs to go. Again, it, it, it feeds into what we saw in the last chapter. Paul loves these people. They love him. They don't want him to go. And it's a, it's a tearing away of the unity that they feel and, and the affection that they have for Paul. So the language is very emotive, very strong there. Um, so you have this, uh, this movement uh, to Tyre. 
and you have lots of ports that are mentioned, and he stays in Tyre for seven days. And it may be, Luke kind of gives us a, a sense of the ship schedule here. They were to unload their cargo. It may have taken them a while to unload the cargo, and then they're going to wait to load up again and, and go. So he's got seven days, which would include uh, a Sunday, first day of the week. So you have that kind of um, uh, meeting going on. Uh, we do know how they use the time there. What did they do? What do they do in Tyre? What does it say? Well, they, well, there's that with the ship. What did Paul and his... They sought out the disciples. Yes, go with tier two. <laughs> they sought out the disciples. Now, the language here, seeking out the disciples, uh, indicates that these are people Paul really doesn't know. He had never met them. He had never, you know, he has to go seek them out. Which is an interesting thing. Because he's in this town that he hasn't really spent a lot of time in. These people are not his disciples. They're not from the ministry of Paul. In fact, um, we know from earlier in Acts, chapter 11, when there was a scattering of the Jewish Christians throughout Caesarea and all of that, a lot of scholars think that these are the, that this is the fruit of that kind of scattering. That these, these are entire who have, uh, who have come to faith through the ministry of those people who have been scattered, and probably some of those who were scattered. Um, what strikes you about this section? Verse 4, what strikes you <laughs> about this section? For the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. What in the world is going on there? Who's been telling him to go? The, Spirit. the Spirit's been telling him to go. And yet here you have a very clear, distinct statement. I love this. No piano. I can pace. <laughs> Through the Spirit, they're telling him not to go. Well, what are we going to do with that? We have a conflict in Scripture. Therefore, the whole thing is flawed. We've got to go fishing. Is it a timing issue? Is it? Is it a timing issue? What, in what way? Well, I mean, maybe the plan is for him to go to Jerusalem, but not to go right now. Okay. That's a possibility. Just not to set foot. That's pretty. Not to set foot. They're telling him through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. What does it mean to to do something through the Spirit? And what and it's the I think it's the means in which they are telling him is how they can say it's through the Spirit. Good question. What does that mean through the Spirit? It's just like what, uh, what Christ went and they're doing it through the Spirit, though. That's what the weird... Yeah, that's the problem. That's the problem we have, is that it's through the Spirit that they're doing this. Well, here is something... I, I'm drawing this out because... <clears throat> we always want to start from the standpoint that the Holy Spirit is not contradictory. Right? God is God. He's wise. He, he can... Oh, wait. I, didn't I say it differently before? I probably shouldn't say it. That's not how God works. He knows what He's doing. He knows, and so you have something drawn out here. There's a purpose to the Spirit moving these disciples to again say to Paul, don't go, don't go, don't go. What do you think it is? Okay. A test of Paul. Christ was certainly tested by His disciples telling Him don't go, right? What else? What's the test, I guess? Well, maybe we'll explain them. Obedience. I mean, Abraham and Isaac. Yeah? Kill them. 
sacrifice him to me. Yeah. He goes up there with a knife about to kill him, and he says, don't do it anymore. You know, right. Let me provide something else. Right. So there's a test of Paul. How resolved is he to follow the spirit that's been testified in every city that I must go and be persecuted? Yeah. Let me say the controversial thing. Okay, please do. Maybe there is a conflict in the spirit oh, of, no. of the, two, the two wills of God. The two wills of God. The spirit. The spirit. <laughs> Let me finish, people. You probably should, so, you probably should stop talking. Maybe in the spirit, these, these people, they want to be fed by Paul because he's such a good teacher. Mm -hmm. So it's he can stay and feed more people, or he can go and be persecuted, which is the greater good for the... Why, why in the world, Paul, would you leave a fruitful ministry to go to certain death? Why in the world would you do that? Why would Christ leave his ministry to be killed on the cross? Is that what's going on here? Is that what's going on? Through the Spirit, they're telling him, don't go. It can't be a contradiction because we believe that Scripture is true, right? So reasoning from the premise that it's not a contradiction, how do you reconcile it? What's the Spirit drawing? What, who, what is the Holy Spirit drawing out here in relationship to Paul and in relationship to these disciples? What is he drawing out? What is he doing? By telling them what's going to happen, will they be surprised when it happens? What does that do to a person's faith if they know what's going to happen, something horrible is going to happen, but they know that God is orchestrating the horrible thing for his own purposes? What does that do to somebody's faith? Does it diminish it or does it strengthen it? I mean, it strengthens it. Okay. Depends on the character of the person, doesn't it? Yes. Do you trust me? Right? What does Paul show here? Strength. Yes, I do. And what happens with him is going to reverberate across all of the church, and they're going to know about the stuff that had been prophesied to Paul beforehand, and that he still went. And by their knowledge of what God had told Paul through several witnesses in every city he's gone to, they're going to, they're, you know, when you lose somebody that's like a, a rock star like Paul, what are we going to do now? How is the church going to continue? The apostles are being slaughtered. Paul is now in chains. What are we going to do? Has God abandoned us? Has he left us without leaders to shepherd us? No. They know what's going to happen ahead of time. They're comforted by the fact that God is sovereign over all things. And it bolsters that they trust him rather than um, have this happen. And Paul is bolstered to be... From this point forward, Paul is in chains in Acts. He's never out of imprisonment from this point forward. And yet we see his witness get bolder and bolder and bolder. Ultimately, some say that he is actually giving witness to the emperor of Rome in Rome himself. We don't have the actual record of that, but that's where he's headed. And the indications are even emperor's household greets you. you know, so he had apparently been able to witness to some within the emperor's household. So you have this... Um, you have this 
this seemingly contradictory thing by the Holy Spirit that highlights Paul's resolution to go to Jerusalem. He's absolutely convinced that God's leading him there. But the warnings prepare him for the imprisonment and the hardship that inevitably are going to befall him. It fortifies him for the experience and it convinces him that God is in it all. And not only Paul, but all those involved. So Paul accepted the suffering as part of his witness, and he alludes to this throughout his letters, doesn't he? We see this again and again and again with these very weird, non-human almost statements like this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. What is that? I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a member according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known, notice the sovereignty language in the context of his suffering. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. He embraces the suffering, but has no delusions about how he'll get through it. Well, I'm Paul. I can handle it. That's not, where he, that's not the way he approaches it. He's not enduring it in his own strength. It's Christ working powerfully in him, Colossians 1, 24-29. So a fair reading of the words of these disciples from Tyre under the Holy Spirit is a preparation for these difficulties in Jerusalem. It's not a con contradiction. He's preparing them for what's going on. The natural response that they have under the influence of the Spirit, is to tell him not to go. And his own determination only highlights the emphasis that he's convinced that God is leading him to Jerusalem with a purpose. So what's the proper response? Well, I just, Paul's crazy. Well, I just leave it. What's the proper response? What do they do? It will be done. What do they show? What do they do? What's the last scene there? Praying on the beach. They're praying on the beach. Find a beach <laughs> and go pray. Well, what does it what does that say? They they're they're conflicted. They don't want him to go. They realize that his resolve, he's um, set his face like flint toward Jerusalem here. He's he's imitating Christ. And so they do what they know to do, which is commend him to the will of God and trust in a sovereign God. Who, um, who governs all things. They, they, they don't do an intervention to kidnap him and save him from himself. Right? They honored him by bringing their families together. This is one of the few times that Luke actually references children other than, you know, that they were all baptized. I'm, just, I'm kidding. It's a joke. Uh, it references children uh, in, in Acts. And they're there to pray for Paul through... Uh, what they all knew was coming. All right, so now he leaves Tyre. Let's look at verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, 
And we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not only uh, not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Similar issue, right? A little more dramatic here. What's that? Nobody's ear got cut off. Uh, so Luke records this about 25-mile journey south of Tyre to Ptolemaeus. As a side note, this city Ptolemaeus is also known in the Old Testament as Akko, which is like an insurance company or something. Akko. Um, and there, there is a part of, on the coast, northwest coast of Israel, it's sort of on the beach. And he only spends a day there. Most likely it's due to the ship's, schedule, the ship's uh, schedule, but 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 what a day, right? I mean, if you're gonna have a day, that's a day to have. What's going on? Why? How, first of all, how does Luke record Paul's initial meeting with these disciples? How does he describe it? In Tyre, it was he sought them out. What does he say here? They were greeted. They were greeted. What does that tell you? They were waiting, they yeah. they were waiting for him. He knew them. Right? He was here in chapter 9 when they spirited him away, when he was being, you know, right after his conversion, the Jews immediately started hunting him. And so some disciples kidnapped him and took him to Caesarea. And this is presumably the guys that he was, he's familiar with these people. He knows these people from that, from that time. So he already knows these brothers. Um, what, who else do we see here? Who else here? His, his entourage. Philip, the evangelist. Who is Philip the Evangelist? Was he the one that uh, ministered to the Ethiopian eunuch? He very much was. He also left a successful um, thing in Samaria. <laughs> he did. And went with the Holy Spirit down south. He did. He, he, uh, he left Samaria and went down south. And so what is, it, what is this about his... Well, first of all, what does Luke tell us about Philip here? What is he, what is he, what, how does he describe him? He calls him the Evangelist. One at seven estate. One at seven... Uh, originally, remember he was uh, it's many times referred to as the commissioning of deacons. Eh. I don't know if I'd necessarily, anyway, we, we can talk about that. Um, so that, the initial seven to help with the, the serving of tables, I guess, is he was one of those guys. But there, he's out preaching the gospel. He's out evangelizing. We see this whole thing early in Acts with, with him and the Ethiopian. Um, and by this time, He's had some, some kids, right? Four daughters, unmarried, what are they doing? Prophesying. They're prophesying. Now that's odd. Does that sound familiar? Have we been told before that this was going to happen, that your sons and your daughters will prophesy? And see, it's being drawn out. Luke is drawing out the fulfillment of Joel 2 that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. 
what do you think they're talking about? What do you think they're prophesying? You think? I think you're right. I mean, that's an assumption. We're not told. But that's the context of the thing. He's leaving, and they're prophesying. In every city he's gone to, these people are telling him, you're going to be bound. You're going to be in chains. You're going to face persecution. You know, whatever. And, and that's why, why draw that out? But to, again, bring this out again, that they're prophesying about Paul's trip to Jerusalem. Who else do we see here in this passage? This is not a reference to a math tool of ancient Greece. This is Agabus. Agabus, thank you. Agabus. Have we seen Agabus before? Yes, we have. In fact, he prophesied back in chapter 11 that Jerusalem would be uh, experiencing the famine. That kind of led Paul to do this whole uh, tour of, of, getting, of getting money for those in Jerusalem. So Agabus, it says, comes down from Judea, but Paul's north. So how is he coming down? It's an elevated plane. That's right. He's coming down from Jerusalem to come to, come to Paul there in uh, Ptolemais. All right. So what does he do? What does he do? It's Agabus. He ties Paul up. He takes the, it says belt. The, I think he ties himself up with Paul's belt. Right. He ties himself up with Paul's belt and then does what? This is what awaits the owner of this belt. Doesn't even say Paul. Why? Yeah, the owner of this belt. Doesn't even. Yeah, Who that's a that weird. One? So if he Who gives the belt away, does that? Hmm. I borrowed that. I, you know, what? What? That was in part. Does he just need to give the belt away at all? <laughs> I'm saying, just sell it in the market right then. <laughs> Why go through that demonstration? That seems very odd. Why do that? Why not just say, hey, you're going to be arrested. Everybody else is. Dramatic effect. Sounds like Old Testament. In what way? Exactly. You see this a lot in the Old Testament. These prophets acting out the judgment of God, the, for, the foretelling of things. Um, I'm trying to think of something that just aren't gross. Uh, yeah, okay. There's a lot of stuff they had to do um, that was just like, what? That is so weird. Their sign elements. There's sign prophecies that the prophets of, in the Old Testament do. You see that office being used again in that way here in the New Testament um, in the first century church. So, Isn't that how they carry a sheep? What's that? By binding it? Carry a lamb? Um, is that how they carry a lamb to slaughter? Yeah. I mean, that's well, we see that in, uh, in with, uh, we've already referenced Abraham and Isaac, right? They, they, they tied it up, put it on the altar. So again, there's the idea of Paul being willing to be a sacrifice, to, to give his life up, and you see that's how he responds. Um, how does, well, the Old Testament prophets, how do they normally start their prophecies? Thus says the Lord. What does Agabus say? Thus says the Holy Spirit. Thus says the Holy Spirit. So if I'm an apologist, and I'm looking to make an argument to somebody about the nature of God, what can I draw from this statement? Thus says the Holy Spirit. It's the same language as thus says the Lord. Who is the Holy Spirit? He's God. He's the Lord. And He speaks. The Holy Spirit's not an impersonal force. He speaks. He's a person. It's not an it, the Holy Spirit. It's a, 
It's, he's a he, the Holy Spirit. It's hard to do. He's a he, the Holy Spirit. It's a, he's a person. Golly. He's a person. Speaking. You don't move the Holy Spirit through the midichlorines in your body. You know, this is not, this is not the force. It is. It's coming. Um, so you have the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is a person. He speaks. And what does the Holy Spirit tell Paul will happen in Jerusalem? He'll be bound and what? And delivered. Does that sound familiar? Who else has been saying that? Oh, I don't know. Back in Luke. Jesus. Always a good answer in Sunday school. Jesus testified of himself, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and we mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon in Luke 18. So, what's the response of the disciples to this? What do they say? Don't go. Don't go. Gosh, that sounds familiar. It's like a refrain in every city. Don't go. Does Agabus say that? No. He just states a fact. He just states the fact. Why do you think that is? We're not given why, but just draw some conclusions. Why do you think that is? I think it's kind of like every, everywhere we've been seeing it's there's, hey, this is what's going to happen. And Paul steals himself, but everybody else tries to turn it from mm -hmm. him. And it's just a repeated over and over. And if you, if you think of this as if it's a testing of Paul, and not just necessarily testing of Paul, but a testament to Paul being able to withstand all this testing, mm -hmm. it, the, the repeated wearing down, eventually somebody's going to break normally if this keeps happening, but Paul doesn't. And here's the last time it happens, right? Before he gets to Jerusalem, and, and what does happen? How does he respond? Why are you what? Why are you breaking my heart? Why are you ripping my heart with this? And in saying how much, and, and there's conflict with Paul. Well, what if I'm misreading this? What if the timing's not right? What if I'm misreading this? My heart is getting divided by your tears and by your pleading with me not to go. But how does he land? What does he say? Brian, already not, not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. Does that sound pretty, pretty, uh, pretty steadfast in his determination to do this? Because he does it in front of all of these people. If he's, if he's using Paul as an example of this is how you should be, he's yeah. willing to go because he, maybe he knew what Paul's response was going to be. Maybe. Maybe. Well, the Holy Spirit certainly did. Um, and, and maybe he clued in Agabus as well. And, it's, and, and again, I think you're right. It's not just for Paul that this is going on. I mean, this is for the encouragement of the saints that he is that he is going through this. Um, talking about it beforehand confirms their faith in the sovereignty of God when it happens. But for now, they plead with him, right? Who all is pleading, by the way? What are the pronouns used? We. Who's the we? The disciples. See, now when Tammy says, uh, we need to mow the yard. <laughs> so it's Paul and the people. No. No, it's not Paul the people. <laughs> who's we? <laughs> a little different use of we here. Who's, who's writing it? Who's writing this? Who's we? The entourage that's with Paul. Entourage that's been traveling with him and Luke. Even Luke is pleading with him not to do this. 
and you see the import of that, why are you breaking my heart? Luke? That too, Luke? You're breaking my heart. <laughs> plus the dagger stuff. Yeah, plus the dagger. We're missing the dagger. With, think about Peter and Jesus here, right? You know, you're not going to go to Jerusalem, Jesus. That's crazy talk. Get behind me, Satan. Right? Paul doesn't go there. Spirit. But it's but them pleading with him not to go is not the is not necessarily consistent with what the Spirit's telling him to do. And it's the same with Jesus. You understand the 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 the, the call, the, the, the heartfelt cry, don't go, don't go, we don't want to lose you. But at the same time he's convinced and testified through the the prophets that he's he's got that this is going to happen. This is going to happen. Lazarus died, Jesus wept. Right, right, and his friends are pleading with him, weeping, and it's breaking his heart. In fact, the one translation has it written this way, why are you pounding away at my heart? The Greek here talks, it, the, the, the metaphor and the language is, is how they did laundry with, you know, you go down the river to pray, Karen, talking about that good old way, you go down the river to your laundry, you get your rocks, and you're pounding on the, uh, the, the, the clothes with the rocks to whiten them, right? Why are you pounding at my heart? That's the language he's using. It's incessant. It's continuous. It's and <clears throat> the extent of his resolve goes even beyond what they're prophesying will happen. It, 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 the, the prophecies are just, you're going to be bound in chains, right? Agabus just ties him up. He doesn't get a, you know, a sword and say, you're also going to have your head removed from your shoulders. No, he just ties him up. This is what's going to happen. But he says he's ready to die if necessary. And how do they respond after his statement? What do they do? They let him go. The will of the Lord be done. His insistence, his determination ultimately dissuades them and they stop. I'm going to pause here in a couple minutes. What? What if they didn't address this with Paul? What if they had all these doubts about his going, but they just kind of held on to them and thought in their heads and maybe among each other how foolish he is? Uh, how, what's wrong with him? He's got a thriving ministry in all these Greek areas. Why would you go to Jerusalem? Well, that's stupid. Why would he do that? Has he lost his mind? Does he have some sort of martyr's complex? It's just selfish of him to want to be elevated. What if they held on to that kind of stuff and never addressed it with him? Time and time again, going to someone with concerns, facing them face to face, clarifies the issue and resolves it. Many times, unfair bias that we, our assumptions that we have about another person's actions are resolved when we go to them and say, why would you do this? What are you, what's going on here? Not always, but many times. And, and I think that's really the, the call of Christ that we see in Matthew 18. Go to your brother. You got questions about what's going on? Go to him. That stuff never is helpful. Here, Paul's conscience controls, not the opinions of people, even close friends. And so they, after talking it through with him and seeing his resolve to do it, they relent. They didn't want to lose him, but they respected him enough that they conceded that his journey was God's will. And so they say, 
let the Lord, let the will of the Lord be done, right? It's not only it's the will of God and we can't do anything about it. It's beyond that, isn't it? Let the will of the Lord be done, for he is wise and does all things according to his own counsel. We will trust him to do with us as it seems good to him. This scene here at the end of uh, uh, verse 14 is often called Paul's Gethsemane. It's the last time he's told not to go to Jerusalem before he actually gets to Jerusalem in the next couple of verses. So let's look at that. 15 and 16 and we'll be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. And so that we got ready means they probably had some pack mules and they got their stuff in, which is kind of an important thing if you're carrying a bunch of money. You want to have a very secure way of traveling so you get everything under the saddles. Um, and so they, some of the guys from Caesarea found lodging for him near Jerusalem in the house of this Hellenistic Christian. The guy's name is Jason, but Nason is kind of a Hellenistic way to say that. And so it kind of tips us that he's a, a Greek-speaking Christian. Um, thus, uh, Paul's missionary journeys are ended in Acts right here in these verses. No more. He's never, he's never going to be free in his witness in the rest of the narrative of Acts. Um, he would be in chains, and his witness, we're going to see, will become bolder still. I want to conclude, and we'll, and we'll wrap up quickly here, with this uh, from Paul. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. It's not a martyr complex. I'm not trying to make a name for myself. Look how much I suffer. It's for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely thinking to afflict, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. They're emboldened. They knew it was going to happen. They knew he was going to be imprisoned. It was the will of God. And in, in, and in seeing that play out just like the Holy Spirit told him it would, they're emboldened to preach the gospel. Some do it from selfish ambition. Some do it out of love for the gospel and love for Paul. But he rejoices either way. Christ is preached, right? Anyway, all right. It's uh, 1010. Um... Doesn't look like anybody has any kind of comment or question, so because the mind can only absorb what the behind can endure. So let's pray, and and we'll go on. Father, thank you for your word that warns us ahead of times the struggles that we're going to have. All of those who desire to live a godly life will face trials and persecutions and difficulties but we thank you that in Jesus we are promised to overcome them not in our own strength but in 
the power of Christ that works powerfully in us. And we pray for your help again to be who we are in Jesus. We thank you for this church. We thank you for um, those in this class. And I pray that as we continue to work toward being who we are in Christ, that we would love one another, that we would um, follow the examples that were set forth in, in Acts in this passage to be open and honest with one another when we have conflict, that we resolve them in the grace of Christ. Thank you for revealing more of yourself in this passage, that you, um, that you love your people to comfort them and embolden them and to assure them of your sovereignty and your direction in these kinds of things and in all things. Be with us as we um, are in the next service. Be with Philip. Help him to preach the word with accuracy, pastorally, and boldly. Be with us as we take the cup and the bread this morning, reminding us that we don't come to the table um, needing to already be cleansed. We come there receiving grace, knowing um, that Christ's work has been finished and we partake of Him. We don't need to take a bath before we take a shower. So let us take it joyfully, um, pleading for forgiveness of sin, but also rejoicing in that forgiveness is given through the finished work of Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen.